Thank you very much, Sir Richard. <clears throat> and let me begin by thanking Gresham College for the honour of inviting me to deliver these lectures, which we think um, are the first to address a Chinese topic in the college's 420-year history. So no pressure on me then. Uh, but let me turn straight to the art historian's prop and solace, the works of art themselves. There are ways in which this crowded scene fits the common stereotype of a Chinese painting, and yet there are ways in which it doesn't. The tall, thin format is that of the typical Chinese hanging scroll, and there's writing in the top left-hand corner, which certainly looks like Chinese characters. Yet the subject seems unfamiliar. Far from the landscape scene, which we might think of as the archetypal sign of Chineseness in a picture, we're indoors, not outdoors, and looking down at a press of bodies, all bundled up in coats and hats and thick robes. The front half of the crowd faces towards us, and we see faces which might be generic, but might be portraits, if slightly cartoonish ones. The rear half of the crowd mostly has their backs to us, and they look intently at what might, at very first glance, be taken to be windows, which quickly resolve themselves into two landscape paintings hanging on the wall, into two examples of exactly the kind of Chinese painting which this isn't. Looking more closely, we might be drawn to a vivid patch of red in the very bottom left-hand corner, which must be a face, but which yet isn't a face, and look along its line of vision to the figure at bottom right, who sports a long overcoat, a bowler hat, and an impressive Kaiser Wilhelm moustache. Just what is going on here? Well, reading the inscription will take us part of the way. It says, On the 13th of January, 1918, Mr. Ye, Mr. Jin and Mr. Chen assembled the holdings of the collectors of the capital and exhibited them in Central Park for seven days. The fees of those who came to see them went to the relief of flood disaster in the capital region. I subsequently pictured the scene of that time to record this splendid event by Chen Shizang. So we've got names, a place, and a date, and together they give us a context for what is titled in bold characters, Viewing Paintings. They tell us this is a picture about looking at pictures, painted by one of the most successful artists of early 20th century Beijing to commemorate an event in which he and two fellow artists staged a public art exhibition to raise funds for those hit by disastrous winter flooding. This wasn't the very first public exhibition to be staged in China. That was a show, part cultural booster and part trade fair, staged in 1910, in the dying days of the Manchu dynasty, whose boy emperor had abdicated in 1912, just six years almost to the very day before the 13th of January 1918. But that exhibition was one of the many new types of social space which the intellectuals of the early Chinese Republic saw as closely connected to the concept of wenming, of civilization, crucially in the sense of modern civilization. How much of that civilization was to be saved from the Chinese past? and how much was to be bought in from the West, that was the tricky question. The audience for the exhibition, so carefully pictorialised by Chen Shizang, will have had thoughts about this. He'll have had thoughts about it himself. 
Chen Shizang was born in 1876, had spent seven years in Japan where he lived as a student not of art but of natural science. He was the son of Chen San Li, a famous poet and holder of the highest level of imperial degree in the Confucian classics, and he grew up with all the trappings of culture and education around him. He began publishing sketches in the newspapers off from his move to Beijing in 1916 until his premature death at the age of 47 in 1923. In Japan, he had encountered the technologically superior but still visibly Japanese civilization, which for all educated Chinese of his time represented both a vexing rebuke and an encouraging role model. He was already well-trained at the hands of a famous master in the style of landscape art we see in his paintings within a painting. Uh, but it was in Japan that he learned a new way of picturing, with the bulk of the human figure modelled in shaded washes. This picture, then, lets, us, lets the artist show us that he can do two things at once. He simply bridges the gap between the Chinese and the foreign by here doing both. He also bridges that gap by showing both Chinese and foreign viewers. For the woman in the bottom right is, by dress and complexion, marked out as Western, as is the extravagantly mustachioed gentleman just to her right. Are these individuals too, or are they just generic markers of the foreign? a sign that early Republican Beijing is very much connected to a wider world. Now, the wider world at this point was, of course, in the final agonies of the First World War and the first agonies of the Russian Revolution and Civil War. So it can't solely have been domestic disasters that were on the minds of Beijing's cultivated art lovers in January 1918. Less than a year before, on the 17th of February 1917, the German adoption of the policy of unrestricted U-boat warfare had claimed a victim much less famous than the Lusitania and with fewer dead, but also with far-reaching consequences. When Athos I went down off Malta on that day, among the 745 people who were killed were 543 Chinese labourers bound for the Western Front. The following month, China broke off diplomatic relations with Imperial Germany and war was declared in August 1917. China was newly at war with Germany when this picture was painted. Is the foreigner then a caricature? It seems unlikely, but it serves to remind us that Chinese intellectuals, whatever cultural or political positions they adopted, by this time they all took a keen interest in the rest of the world. After nearly 80 years of pretty relentless imperialist onslaught, they could do no other. So perhaps viewing paintings is a bit more than a jokey commemoration of a circle of friends, painted as it was in a world which must have felt uncertain and threatening. As the increasingly dysfunctional Chinese Republic stuttered into the status of a failed state, the claims made for the place of culture were important. 
Let's start by acknowledging that for most of the short 20th century, which my three lectures offering a connected history of Chinese art will address, for most of that period, Chinese intellectuals have known massively more about the West than educated people in the West have known about China. My experience, and I hope this isn't insulting to anyone present, is that general knowledge of modern Chinese art in this country pretty much runs in a sequence which goes traditional landscape painting, scholars in a pavilion, then the hysteria and destruction of the cultural revolution and adulation of the great leader, then Ai Weiwei. So what I want to try and give you is an overview with all the omissions and oversimplifications for which I apologize, an overview of how the visual arts in China experienced and made the 20th century and the very varied responses produced to the challenges it posed. Variety will be central to what I'm saying here, but so too will connectedness, an attempt to demonstrate that art in China has always been part of a larger, even of a global conversation, even if other parts of the world have sometimes been slow to or unwilling to listen. The Chinese Republic, which succeeded the last imperial dynasty on the abdication of the Boy Emperor in 1912, was initially far from achieving the ambitions which its founders had for it. One of the catalysts of their disappointment was the decision of the victorious Allied powers, of which China was technically one, that decision at the Versailles Peace Conference to award the colonies in China of a defeated Germany not back into Chinese hands, but to the Japanese as a prize for their participation. It was a demonstration in 1919 against this decision which gave its name to what's often been called a May 4th movement. Young intellectuals from Beijing's new modern university were at the core of this movement, and its alternative name of the New Culture Movement gives a hint that this was a call for the thorough renovation of Chinese cultural as well as political scene. This sense that the old ways will no longer do was more or less universal among Chinese elites of the early 20th century, even among those who later get called conservatives, and even as fierce debate raged about what should be put in their place. The early death in 1925 of Sun Yat-sen, father of the nation, opened the way for a more effective, if much less broad-minded, political hegemony of the Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek, even as more radical solutions to China's plight were mooted from a left grouped around a small but intensely committed Communist Party. Supporters of both were equally opposed to the continued role played by political and economic imperialism made visible and material by the foreign presence of which Shanghai was the largest and most splendid example. So the extent to which the foreign and the modern were one and the same thing was a debate which raged among intellectuals, but which touched much wider audiences as well. And the visual arts were one of the spheres in which that debate was played out. Here's a woodblock print from the early years of the Republic, a type peddled in villages across North China and seen in even very modest rural homes where the vast majority of China's population continued to live. It claims to show the scenery of Sichuan province, but it's a fantasy, with its trams and its aeroplanes and its bicycles 
and its storied buildings and its tangle of telegraph and electric wires. Its exaggerated single-point perspective, its fiercely insistent spatial recession, also marks it out as something new. That urge for the new was therefore carried far from places like Shanghai through pictures like this to people who may never have seen a tram or an aeroplane at this point, but who formed an audience for the ideas about modernity that such pictures made tangible and thinkable. Another cityscape, if in a more sophisticated style, has some of the same issues. It's an oil painting of the great south gate of Beijing, the old imperial capital, painted in 1922 by an artist named Liu Haisu, someone who at this point had never travelled to Europe but already had a fluent mastery of oil painting technique. He uses it here to juxtapose the ancient gate with, to its right, the arched concrete roof of Beijing's railway station, made more noticeable by the telegraph wires which stand in front of it. This is the first of three pictures which I want to show you to begin thinking about the diversity of China's art in the 1920s. And the second is this one, Girl of the Autumn River, by the 18-year-old artist Guanzalan. She too was almost entirely self-taught at this point, precociously aware of avant-garde te tendencies in Paris, which were as troubling to European audiences as they were puzzling to her Chinese contemporaries. And the third picture is this one, which brings us back to Chen Shizong, artist of the viewing paintings scroll with which I began. This looks like a pretty stark juxtaposition of oil and ink, modern and traditional, foreign and Chinese. But I want to suggest some of the ways in which it's not as simple as that. Or at least, if someone like Chen Shizong painted like this in China in 1921, he did so not simply because he was either ignorant of other possibilities for art or because he wanted to cling unthinkingly to a treasured past. As a student of the natural sciences in early 20th century Japan, Chun had had plenty of exposure to ideas outside China and he knew quite well what was going on. He put his ideas into an essay published in 1921 entitled The Value of Literati Painting in which he had this to say. Western painting can be described as extremely faithful to form. Since the 19th century, in accordance with the principles of science, Western painting has meticulously rendered object with light and colours. Lately, however, post-impressionism has run counter to that course. It de-emphasises the objective and focuses on the subjective, and it is joined in its revolutionary performances by cubism and futurism. Such intellectual transformations are sufficient demonstrations that verisimilitude does not exhaust the good in art and that alternative criteria must be sought. In other words, rather than clinging to the past, Chen Shizang is making a bold claim here for his own art and those of contemporaries who made art like his as being in some sort of global vanguard. The fact that it isn't simply representational, not mimetic, not a window onto a world, that it doesn't concern itself with transcribing the appearance of the visible world, that's what puts it in the same place as the Western avant-garde practices of post-impressionism, cubism, futurism. <laughs> 
What matters isn't a transcription of the world, he says, but the expression of artistic subjectivity. And this is something which painting in China has always done. Hence, the so-called traditional, he claims, is in fact the very essence of the modern and fit to take its place with the other modernities of the post-war world. In this landscape by another artist of the 1920s, the rain-sodden scene is caught in the silvery gleam of a bolt of jagged lightning across the sky. In a picture which uses the same materials of paper, brush and ink as Chinese paintings had been using for centuries. But it looks no more like Chinese painting from the previous centuries than a Picasso looks like a traditional Western painting. Even though Picasso continued to use the materials of oil on canvas and paint subjects like the female nude, which had centuries of tradition behind them. The emphasis on brushwork, which had always been present in Chinese art criticism, now took on a new force as the foregrounding of the artist's subjectivity, in the, as the marks they made on the paper became the main thing that their art was about. Chen Shenzheng called this art wenrenhua, literati painting, using an ancient term to which he gave a new twist, but in the years after his premature death, Another term gradually came into use for this mode of work, the Chinese term guohua, which literally means national painting. It took its place alongside a raft of new terms designed to identify a specifically national, Chinese, republican form of modernity. And these terms included things like guoyu, which means national language, and guohua, national products which were the goods manufactured in China itself, which the patriotic citizen of the Republic was urged to prefer to foreign imports. However, not everyone was convinced. And although national painting was commercially the most successful mode of art in the 1920s and 1930s, its large clientele among the old and new rich, sustaining an ever-growing body of artists, it took its place, at least in the marketplace of ideas, alongside work which drew more explicitly on foreign media and foreign models. It's worth stressing that these were models with which Chinese audiences at least had a long familiarity. Leaving aside the presence of actual European artists in the pay of the imperial Chinese court from the early 18th century onwards, by the end of that same 18th century, the practice of oil painting was well established in Chinese ports and major centres, catering to an extent but not exclusively for a foreign clientele. The picture on the screen shows the academy established by French Catholic missionaries at Xujiahui in modern Shanghai, where Chinese apprentices, and I just note that they're being taught by Chinese instructors, these Chinese apprentices are being taught to produce images of the Madonna and other sacred subjects to meet the needs of an expanding establishment of Catholic churches across China, often in fairly remote rural areas. So by the time the ferment of the new culture movement was at its height, a number of art academies under Chinese direction existed where students could be formally taught the protocols of drawing and painting, both in what would soon come to be called national painting, and in the styles then familiar to art students across the rest of the globe. 
And in the case of the latter, these included sketching from life in the open air, which we see here, and the exhibition of work, where you can just make out some of the results of those excursions into the countryside, along with a figure of the clothed life model sketched from the numerous different angles taken by a class arranged in the classic classroom semicircle. Art schools were definitely a new type of institution in early 20th century China, replacing the older practices of apprenticeship and master-pupil relationships through which technical skill in painting had been transmitted in the past. But they didn't entirely replace these older forms of learning, and this is true not just of artists working in the national painting manner, but equally of those who embraced other possibilities. One of the most subsequently famous of these figures was a man called Xu Bei Hong, who was to become one of the most prominent advocates of a style he saw as modern, not so much because of its perceived westernness as because of its underpinning in science. Science was a source of values seen as universal and not the exclusive property of any one artistic tradition. If what he saw as realism was scientific, then it was potentially to be discovered in a range of times and places. And to embrace it was not necessarily to turn your back on what was Chinese. Xu Bei Hong came from a family of professional painters, and from his teens he was making a living by working to order for a whole range of projects thrown up by the needs of modern life. He painted this portrait of He Jian Li, or Lily Ho, in 1915 while still in his teens, and in the year he moved to the metropolis of Shanghai. This is an image of the youthful Californian Chinese wife of a grand old man of Chinese politics and culture named Kang Youwei, an important early patron to Xu Bei Hong in his youth. It mimics the conventions of the portrait photographer's studio of the day. Indeed, it has an almost uncanny photographic quality, but it also shares a lot of its sense of style with advertising images of the day, like this calendar poster using fashionably dressed ladies to advertise the products of the Anglo-American Tobacco Company, most notably the cigarettes, which were part of the modern way of smoking. Xu Bei Hong initially enrolled in the French department of one of Shanghai's universities. But even before the ferment of the new culture movement reached its height, he had moved to Beijing and, and to a job with the Art Research Association of Beijing University. There he was already given to bold pronouncements like this. Quote, Western materials can represent the objects adequately, but Chinese cannot do so. Now we might note that representing the object was precisely not what someone like Chen Shizang and Guohua painters more generally, that's not what they thought painting was for. So this is as much an argument about the purpose of art as it is about how that purpose was to be achieved. I think it's interesting too here that he talks about materials and not about style. But in any case, this sort of sweeping pronouncement is very typical of certain strands of new culture movement rhetoric. And you get firebrands then saying apocalyptic things like this, quote, to build a westernized new country 
and a westernized new society so that we can survive in this competitive world, we must solve the basic problem of importing from the West the very foundations of the new society. We must get rid of the old to achieve the new. And there'll be echoes of that statement later on in the series. Xu Beihong was given the opportunity to enhance his command of the Western materials of art when in 1919 the painting of another Republican grandee secured him a government scholarship to study in Paris, at this time still the unquestioned centre of the global art world and the object of aspiration from young, for young artists from the four quarters of the earth. He was to remain in Paris with a side trip to Berlin until 1925, and he was to do well there, winning prizes at the École des Beaux-Arts for the quality of his elegant drawings, drawings from the life and from the plaster casts, which still formed an indispensable part of artistic training at that time. He returned to Shanghai, trailing all the glamour of his lengthy stay at the Hub of Art. Never a man overburdened with self-doubt, he was happy to see himself as the central figure of an alternative form of national painting. This was to be one founded on science and realism rather than on the subjective vision of the artist, as proclaimed by someone like Chun Shizang. His arguments were shared by other painters of the 20s and 30s working in oil, but they were arguments which by and large failed to convince a broad audience. And both Xu Hong and his compatriots in the practice of oil painting never made a living in the China of the early Republican period through selling their work. Commercial success continued to belong instead to the practitioners of national painting in brush and ink, whose alternative vision of a Chinese modernity was more attractive to a broad clientele. Indeed, someone like Xu Hong made his living through holding positions in the new art schools and universities, which continued to be established, especially after the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek consolidated its power in 1927 and instituted the so-called Nanjing Decade of Comparative Political Stability. It took its name from the site of the new Republican capital of Nanjing. And it was in Nanjing that Xu Hong began work on the large-scale oil painting, Tian Hung and his 500 followers. This is the kind of heroic image of a distinctively national history which had inspired him in Paris and which he sought to create as the visual counterpart of a new sense of republican patriotism. This is a melancholy scene. It shows the moment when the ancient king Tian Hung, and he's the figure in red in the right foreground, he's been defeated in battle and he sees the hopelessness of his position and he's off to commit suicide rather than surrender to a hated foe. The 500 companions of his last stand will follow him to a heroic death and they express varying degrees of rage, sorrow and determination. One of the most prominent of these followers, right in the centre of the composition, bears the easily identifiable features of the artist himself, as he literally paints himself into China's ancient history, claiming for this mode of art the right to be, if not national painting, then the painting of the national story. 
And his other major large-scale work of this period, Awaiting the Deliverer, again takes its theme from the classics of Chinese literature to represent a group of peasants, emaciated and impoverished, but full of hope as they strain in anticipation of the arrival of the just and effective ruler who will bring an end to the people's woes. Now, I've said that it was Western materials, uh, and above all, the very medium of oil on canvas, which Xu Bei Hong saw as uniquely suited to capturing the realistic appearance of the object, and so transcend through science the dichotomy of Eastern and Western, which, in the wake of the First World War, increasingly hardened into a binary opposition where never the twain could meet. But there were others in China at the same time who saw these same materials as fruitful for other possibilities. In the very year of 1911 that the Republican Revolution led to the overthrow of the imperial system, a Chinese student at the Tokyo University of the Arts, studying under professors who were themselves products of Parisian avant-garde, he painted a self-portrait. This already shows a degree of awareness of those currents which were ultimately to reject realism as the basis for painting in Europe. And the appropriation of the manner of someone like Georges Seurat is unmistakable. Nor was it the case that you needed as a young Chinese artist to have the opportunity to travel abroad in order to access this and similar manners. So, Guanzalan was precociously engaging with a manner of Henri Matisse and Les Fauves, the wild beasts, even before she had the opportunity herself to study in Japan in 1927. And this engagement only deepened after the time she spent there, as is seen in her most famous single portrait, the portrait of Miss L. So among the shifting constellation of art manifestos, societies and polemics which constituted the intense art world of Republican China, the work of Lin Feng Mian is of particular importance. Like Xu Bei Hong, he came from a fairly humble background rather than being born into either old or new elites of educational wealth. He also studied in Europe in the 1920s and he returned to take up a position as a teacher and institutional leader, this time at the art school which has evolved in today's, into today's China Academy of Art in Hangzhou. The vast, gloomy, tortured canvases with titles like Death and Humanity. He painted these on his return to China and they were the sensation of the one-man exhibition which he held in Shanghai in early 1928. But none of this work seems to have, hold, seems to have sold and almost all of it's now lost. Fallen prey to war and revolution and the dislocation of Lin Feng Mian's life in China's turbulent 20th century. Lost, too, is the work from this period of his avant-garde contemporaries, people like Pang Xunqin, here is his painting, The Riddle of Life, or another work, The Wicker Chair. Or rather, the actual works are lost, but we know of them, and hence know something of their reception and their audiences through their reproduction in the flourishing illustrated periodical press which bound together otherwise disparate communities of readers in the 1920s and 1930s. 
Here's a double-page spread from the January 30th, 1928 issue of the magazine Liang You Hua Bao, known also by its English title of The Young Companion. This is coverage of an art exhibition held that year in Nanjing, and there in the upper right-hand corner, just here, is a reproduction of Lin Feng Mian's huge expressionist canvas, Humanity. So, to give a little bit of context about this magazine, about The Young Companion, it ran from 1926 to 1945, and it was described by one of its editors as ice cream for the eyes. We need to see it, I think, as one of a global wave of magazines which put photographic reproduction at the heart. These include L'Illustration in France, Illustrated London News and Picture Post here in the UK, Life in the USA, as well as a whole raft of journals across Latin America and Asia from Argentina to Japan. The global dimension of a periodical like Liangyo, and I'm calling it now by its Chinese name, I think it's neatly shown by this cartoon from 1932, which shows uh, Mickey uh, and Goofy, Mickey Mouse and Goofy. These are global superstars of their era. They are as recognisable in Shanghai as they are in Aberdeen or in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And they're shown avidly reading the magazine, which is identifiable by its uh, signature cover um, of a demure lovely engaging the viewer's gaze. Now, to be a reader of Liang Yo, which printed 35,000 copies and claimed to reach a readership of half a million per issue, was to stake a claim not only to be a viewer of modernity, but to be modern oneself through the very act of viewing. And this, I think, is where the neat binary division of the story of 20th century Chinese art into self-contained silos of the traditional and the modern, the indigenous and the foreign, the Chinese and the Western, uh, ink and oil, these silos begin to break down. Whatever position might be taken in the polemics of artists and critics, and there were many and vociferous, the fact is that from the viewer's point of view, works of art of very different formal characteristics are capable of sharing the same space and the same category as both painting and Chinese and modern. So if we look closely at the page with humanity um, at the top of it, uh, we see immediately beneath that work a, work a painting executed in brush and ink and simply entitled landscape, or rather shan shui, which literally means mountain and water, and is the ancient and time-honoured appellation for this most enduring of subject matters. I think even more strikingly, on the bottom row and next to each other, we see two pictures of more or less identical subject matter, of flowers in a pot, the one on the left being an oil painting and the one on the right being painted again in brush and ink. In terms of categorization, that is of name-calling, two of these pictures are what contemporaries would have called yang hua, literally foreign painting, while two of them are guo hua, national painting. But though these distinctions mattered terribly to artists, and have correspondingly mattered a lot to art historians who have written about this period, I wonder if they mattered quite so much to audiences. 
On the contrary, the great and diverse array of images in the pages of Liangyo, or even on the same page of Liangyo, gives a sense that for its readers, openness to a wide range of the visual arts was more important than the policing of boundaries and the erecting of walls. I said at the beginning of this lecture that educated Chinese have always known more about European culture than vice versa. And one of the reasons for this was the willingness of Liang Yu to, for example, run extensive features spread over several issues of the journal on the classic arts of the European Renaissance. In other ways, too, journals like Liang Yu and its competitors brought the debates which animated the relatively small world of professional artists to a wider audience. The journal was quick to seize on the possibilities for titillation and added sales suggested by the coming into visibility in Republican China of the nude as part of visual culture. The role of the nude and drawing from the nude as part of the training of artists in the sciences of the body and anatomy were firmly established in the consciousness of someone like Xu Bei Hong. Though far from uncontroversial and leading to sporadic government clampdowns on art schools that maintained the practice, there was an almost inevitable leakage of this scandalous subject matter, legitimised as art, into the pages of illustrated magazines. Such themes are prominent in a title which veered more towards the risque than Liang Yo, but which generally made less use of the photographic in favour of the drawn and the cartoon. So this was Shanghai Manhua, or Shanghai Sketch. The cover illustration to its very first issue, dated uh, April 1928, is entitled Cubist Shanghai Life, assuming a readership that is at least familiar with a term like this, enough to see it as a marker of sophistication and cosmopolitanism. In June of 1928, the Shanghai sketch began a long-running feature entitled A Comparison of the Global Human Form, now, this was a fairly flimsy excuse for the publication of a range of female photographic nudes ranging across the full gamut of the ethnographic and the pin-up. And it was this Nudes of the World series which led eventually to the unsuccessful prosecution for obscenity of its editors in October 1928. So with that focus on the photographic, from works of art to news items to images of celebrities, both local and foreign, it was inevitable that journals like Liang Yo should take a position on the issue of the extent to which photography was itself an art form and photographers part of the art world. Here, two spreads from 1928 and 1929 show that the magazine came down very firmly on the side of a positive answer to this and it was probably less burdened by its European competitors with the idea that photography had somehow usurped painting's function of recording the appearance of things. On the left-hand side, you see a number of works from a Shanghai photographic exhibition, while the image on the lower right is Collars by the Canadian photographer Bruce Metcalf. One of the pioneers of art photography in 1920s China, a man called Hu Xiang, also had his work, like this soft focus image of a peasant scene, published in the pages of magazines. These were magazines which might go out from the urban context in which they were produced 
to smaller cities further afield, and even into the very villages which are here portrayed for an essentially urban gaze. But if we step back from magazines, we might consider how it was probably, in fact, Hu Xiang's day job, the way he made his livelihood, which reached the widest and most diverse audiences. Here is one of the posters he designed, more or less contemporaneously with the photograph I've just shown you, uh, a poster designed to advertise the Hataman brand of cigarettes, again exploiting the expanded possibilities for the overtly erotic, or at least the coquettish portrayal of women, which both fine art and commercial advertising brought to China at this time. In working for the world of commerce in this way, Hu Xiang, he was in the same boat as more or less any artist who wanted to work outside the commercially dominant world of guohua, of, of national painting, and who couldn't secure one of the relatively few and consequently very desirable teaching jobs which were going. So it is that it's in the world of commercial graphics, not just advertising, but also book and magazine design, that we see some of the most formally innovative work of the period, work which its artists could never have sold in the form of straight painting. This 1929 cover design for a collection of short stories by the major writer Lu Xun shows how graphic designers were able to push the envelope in ways which added another dimension to what I hope I've shown was the intensely diverse art world in China at this time. I hope I've also shown how it was a world that wasn't just diverse, but intensely engaged as part of a global conversation. And I will end with one concrete example of this. In 1929, shortly after the political pacification of 1927, the government mounted an unprecedentedly large exhibition of contemporary art. This led Xu Bei Hong to write one of the best-known polemics in an age which wasn't by any means short of polemics. In an essay entitled Doubts, he let fly at what was then becoming established as the canon of European modern art, fulminating like this. On the other side, despite all their iniquities, the vulgar Manet, the boorish Renoir, the turgid Cezanne and the inferior Matisse still managed, with the help of art dealers' manipulation and publicity, to become the sensations of their time, recognised and heeded by the general public. The dignity of the fine arts has been eroded, while vulgar fashions have become chic trends. Now, a riposte by the poet Xu Drumore, and I appreciate this is a bit confusing, but they weren't related, despite um, having the same surname. A riposte by the poet Xu Drumore claimed... The truthfulness or falsehood of art can be gauged neither by empirical experience nor by intuition, and art must be granted its own autonomy from which the genuine independent spirit emanates. Now, this exchange, it's a very famous exchange. It goes on for a couple more rounds. It's one of the most famous exchanges um, in modern Chinese art, and it's usually been understood to show how Xu Bei Hong, despite his years in Paris, had totally, almost laughably, failed to grasp where European art was going. We might uh, even juxtapose him to his disadvantage 
with the, uh, with the champion of literati painting, Chen Shizeng, who at least got the point of post-impressionism, cubism, futurism, as far back as 1921. But we need to avoid here the, condens the condescension of hindsight. And I think we need to remember that globally, in the late 1920s, what we now think of as advanced modern art was still very far from being accepted, even in its homeland, and could be openly attacked to applause in all sorts of quarters. In 1928, just one year before Xu Hong launched his attack on, among others, the turgid Cezanne, the North China Herald, which was the principal English-language newspaper of Shanghai, and it was the mouthpiece of its British expatriate community, it carried a review of a new book on that artist, on Cezanne, by the Bloomsbury critic and writer Roger Fry. And this review positively foams at the mouth in its condemnation. How the reproductions in this book can be considered as art is beyond the understanding of this reviewer. Without the ability to draw, with no power of conjuring up a pictorial image, mentally on which to build a picture, lacking almost everything that goes to make a real artist, and swamped by an erotic temperament, Cezanne certainly does not merit the extraordinary praise bestowed upon him in this book. This style of art, and it puts it in scare quotes, this style of art is not to be encouraged. Now, I don't, I don't for one second um, intend to suggest that Xu Hong got the idea that Cezanne was turgid or that he was a bad artist from reading the North China Herald. But I do want to at least explore the idea that the assault on modernism and on all the advanced trends of art which it encompasses, that this assault owes something to Xu Hong's very acute awareness of trends and developments in Paris at that time. The so-called rappel à l'ordre, the conservative call to order, was issued in 1926 in Paris by the brilliant young maverick writer Jean Cocteau. The attack on Cézanne is thus perhaps not a sign that Xu Hong does not know what is going on, but rather it might be a sign that he does, and a warning therefore that our understanding of the new art being made and being argued about in the new Republic of China, that understanding will be impoverished if we don't keep the global aspect of its production and its consumption firmly in mind. This is an idea I want to, will want to develop uh, in the next of these three lectures, but for now I thank you for your attention and I would be happy to take any questions which members of the audience have. Thank you very much indeed.